right. We should be connected. Yes, we are connected. I see us recording. And um, as well, first of all, welcome to the next Langtime Chat episode. Um, and David informed me right before we started recording that he was planning on hanging up on me several times during this call. Um, that is a pre-planned thing. Or maybe maybe that's what you said, or maybe what you really said was that your internet is spotty today, and I'm just taking it personally. I don't know. <laughs> what, I'm, what I'm saying is watch yourself, all right? You are already on thin ice. <laughs> the thinnest of ice. You think and I've forgotten about that diaresis? <laughs> a diaresis that you wanted? No. What, I was going to say, wait, that should be me upset with you because you took it away from me. Uh-huh. And you were advocating for it. You have to back uh, every single one of my decisions 100%. And I have to back none of yours. That's how this partnership works. <laughs> In fact, you find out what I want, and then you start taking it away. <laughs> Central vowels? Oh, no. <laughs> oh, but Wima, you got but Yes, Wima. I did get Wima, only because I lost something else. That's okay. That's okay. I do have Wima. <laughs> Hey, I've got a I got a pitch idea. Check this out. So replace Christmas with this. You get gifts, but you also lose stuff of equal value. And you open the gift first and it's very exciting. And then you go back to your room and you see, oh, oh. Maybe I shouldn't have traded. But I, there is the question though. Do you get to pick what no. is disappearing or you just find out it's gone? No, Santa brings the presents and then Krampus steals things from you. Well, I will say, not quite the same, but mm. when Will was younger, we always knew around Christmas he was going to be getting lots of toys because kids just collect toys from everybody in life. And so around Christmas, we would always have him go through and say, if you want new ones, like if you want Santa to visit, you have to give stuff away. <laughs> So you would have to donate oh, before Christmas on. every Jesse, year. Jesse, hang on. Yeah. You, you've muted. I can't hear you. Oh, well, I can hear me. Oh, no. I see my microphone moving. I still moving. can't hear you. What's happened? Just one second. You, okay. Are you sure your AirPods are working? I mean, not as far as I know. Okay, so... We're going to do the rest of this podcast where I can't hear Jesse. It says left battery at 98%, right battery at 98%. Wait, are you not recording? I am. There's a red dot. I'm recording. Oh, you are recording. Yeah, no, we're all recording. Okay, that's good. Well, I'm going to try this again. Hello? Hello. It's like, uh, hold on, speaker. Let's try that. Hello? Hello. There you are. Okay. I was going to say, I haven't stopped. My little microphone is showing the whole time that I've been talking. So mm. hopefully on the recording, everybody hears me. Yeah. I, I just like that. Um, I mean, we're not going to edit this at all. We're going to hear everything. <laughs> um, just because we are that lazy. It's like uh, a hard candy Christmas. <laughs> You're quoting a Dolly Parton song. I love it. I am. Uh, yes. Uh, can I? Okay, a small digression. This is the last one, I swear. What the hell is a hard candy Christmas? Well, I'm guessing based on context <laughs> that it's a Christmas where that's all you get. 
Like your only gift is a piece of hard candy because you just don't have enough money. So it's like you only but, get these little things, but they mean so much because it's just you and your family. Oh, okay. Why did you choose hard candy? Because like, that's, that's the thing that people like. Well, just a second. What is a hard candy Christmas? No, I, I, yeah. Uh, so here's, here's I, it reminded me of the song Wonderwall by Oasis. You know Wonderwall? Of course. Okay. So uh, the, the first many times I heard it, um, it was like you have this chorus, and lately, no, he sings better than that. I just want to throw a dig at him. But, um, uh -huh. you know, uh, so, so, but maybe you're going to be the one that saves me. And after all, here comes the big payoff. You're my wonder wall. So you're like, what the hell is a wonder wall? Right? But you, obviously. <laughs> I know. So it's like, is this, it's weird because it's like, this is the metaphor that's supposed to pay off where you're supposed to get it. That's going to make the whole song make sense. And it's just nothing. It's like, I didn't get it at all. Now it turns out that of course he was referring to a rare uh, George Harrison album uh, called Wonder. Oh, okay. And so it, that was what he meant. It was kind of like, you're my, you know, rare find that, uh, that always makes me happy or, or, you know, something to that effect, but it was something real. Like it was just a name we didn't know. It, it's, it would be like, Fair enough. it would be like, I don't know if I, if I, if I said to you, it's like, wow, you're my Dan Marley. Do you know who Dan Marley is? <laughs> no. No. See? Uh, so it means nothing to you, even though like Dan Marley was, he was a, pretty big deal in my life. Um, so then there was Wonderwall and it's like, well, if you don't, it just doesn't even sound like a name. Anyway, so I thought it meant nothing, but it meant something. So Hard Candy okay. Christmas is... So on the one hand, I was right because it says okay. the phrase Hard Candy Christmas refers to a time when many families did not have much money and could only afford to give penny candy to their children. However, it's got a, a, another meaning on top of that, because what I didn't realize was that the song was actually written for and first performed in the best little whorehouse in Texas. And so the lyrics oh. of the song, it says here, suggest the many choices and difficult decisions girls have to make as they move on, specifically as they're leaving. Because, well, I won't give any spoilers anyway. Yeah, because I still haven't seen it. You should, you should. Um, but so, I did not realize that it actually debuted and was written expressly for that movie. I didn't either. Um, and, and now though, so uh, we, are to be, we are given to understand that Hard Candy Christmas is a, it's, it's something that people would have known. Like hearers of the song would have been like, oh yeah. Maybe. I actually have no idea. I just always assumed that that's what it referred to. Cause I know from like Little House on the Prairie that they used to give fruit or candy for Christmas and that was it. And so like, to me, that was just like, oh, it's a hard candy Christmas. Like that's all we can give. Hmm. I don't know. See, I, when I was listening to it the first time, I thought it was going to be Christmas like a hard candy. And it's like, hmm, Christmas that you kind of suck on and has good flavor. It's a peppermint stick. <laughs> That's what it is. Okay, we're gonna move on from that. Okay. Yes. Um, to today's topic, I, we've been going for almost ten minutes and don't have a topic for the day. Okay, yeah. so um, some of our listeners are in the United States, so you'll know about this holiday. 
Others are not. And so you may not be aware of our holiday here in the United States that is still on the government books and like banks still get off and it is Columbus Day. Now, mind you, Columbus Day is now kind of being taken over by a much better holiday, which is the um, National Indigenous Peoples Day. And so that's the, the one I'm choosing to celebrate today. It is Monday, October 12th, by the way, yeah. on the day of recording. You won't hear it till November 1st, but just understand that this is all very timely. But anyway, I'm assuming that because we're the same age, that you had the same education I did, where like I learned a lot about Columbus and Nina the Pinta, the Santa Maria, you know, 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, that whole thing. Yeah. But like, you don't really learn <laughs> about the people other than the fact that there were people that he misnamed the Indians because he thought he was in India. But like, we never really learned about the people here other than just historical notes as as needed for the the colonization kind of history is that the same kind of education you had unfortunately yes yeah pretty much i mean i mean did you make a boat oh always always yeah. like and and usually it was like a newspaper boat that you actually like got to go outside and play and it was all exciting because we had school on it but it was always like a free day where we got to like celebrate all day and there are schools now that just get it off. There are, like right now, banks are off today. And you know it's because on the calendar it says Columbus Day. And it's like yeah. such a bizarre day. It makes much more sense to to celebrate the indigenous peoples. <laughs> yeah. No, but uh, this actually might be interesting, especially for our listeners outside of the United States. So uh, part of uh, what many, many young children do is, uh, you know, a quote unquote celebration of this holiday or just in learning about it is you make a boat. Uh, usually, it, so yeah, it can be out of newspaper. We also did it out of cardboard, not for sailing, but for making okay. it look nice. Um, and so, yeah, you just make a boat that's like one of the boats that Columbus sailed on mm -hmm. or the pilgrims sailed on, right? And uh, and you just make, you know, little models of them. And so that'll be like your art project for a day or two, depending on how much effort is put into it. Uh, that's like a, one of the things that you remember from your yes. early education. Well, in one um, of the, um, one of the really years. study and, boats. Right. <laughs> one year, I think it was my eighth grade year, we actually got to do like, um, it was like a not quite a silkscreen press, but it was that same kind of idea. And so everybody brought in a, a just a white T-shirt or, or you know plain color shirt, and we got to paint the the boat stencils on shirts. And so that was like the big thing. So you had a shirt that you made with the three boats. Yeah. It was. I mean, like seriously though, like exactly what you're saying. Like this was a big deal. Um, still is in a lot of places because i know um even when will was in daycare he brought home macaroni art that was the macaroni noodles for the ocean and then the three boats were on it i mean like this still we still make boats we are obsessed with these freaking boats <laughs> so <laughs> welcome to america <laughs> where yeah. we celebrate boats um Okay, so in honor of 
what I'm calling the actual holiday. Mm. Um, I have selected three languages that were spoken by indigenous people of, um, oh, I'm going to go ahead and restrict it. I'm telling you now, cause it's going to be a, some rounds of name that language. I'm going to give you facts and you're going to have to tell me what language I'm talking okay. about. Okay. Okay. Um, but I am, I did restrict it to continental United States territory. And so that automatically takes out um, a lot of language families that would be say in Alaska or even yeah. Hawaii. So like we're yeah, really like just two looking. Of my, two of my favorites, two of my favorites <laughs> that I know a lot about. Thank well, you. you're welcome. <laughs> One of the reasons, by the way, I restricted it is because I'm going to hopefully save enough time at the end that you can teach me something about Hawaiian because I know that that is a language <laughs> that you, um, know stuff about and it's a language that I just find so beautiful and so I was like well at the end David can tell me about a language and so I had already thought through that which is why I took Hawaii yes. out of the room. I love it. Okay Thank so you. there are others though and I did they were only languages that I could find information about. They're all on walls. And so that also tells you a little bit more because obviously there's tons of languages that it could be, but I did like, I wasn't trying to be mean and like stump David on a podcast. Um, you know, You're probably going to do it anyway. <laughs> well, cause there's a lot of languages and yeah. what I'm going to do is give you um, features. So typological features from walls. And I'm going to wait. This is the part of the game, by the way, where I keep going back and forth. I'm like, should I give him the family and genus up front? But then I think for some of them that may narrow it down so much that you already know the language before having to listen to any facts. Okay. So I think what I'm going to do is on the first one, we're going to see how it goes. We're rolling with the punches today, everyone. Yeah. Um, I'm going to read the facts first. And then I'm going to tell you the family and genus. And if at any point you're like, oh, no, I already know the language, feel free to guess. And then I also have websites pulled up in case you need to ask more questions. Okay, cool. <laughs> so language number one. And we're going to have three languages, by the way, just so that way you Got know <laughs> what's going on. And I'm trying to position my document so I can still see you. Mm. Um, doesn't matter to anybody else but me, but that's <laughs> nice to see what you're thinking. I'd like to see um, me too. <laughs> we have already established this. <laughs> All right. So this language, are you ready? Yeah. This language has a moderately large consonant inventory, but a small vowel inventory with only in between two or four unique vowel um, qualities in it which means it has a high consonant to vowel ratio because a lot more consonants than vowels. It does have a voice in contrast in fricatives, but not in plosives. And its voiceless stop series includes aspirated, unaspirated, and ejective phonemes. Its syllable structure is moderately complex and it has simple tones. So that's some information about its sounds. And by the way, like I was kind of excited to see moderately complex syllable structure, which connects to our hopefully going to be complex syllable structure Shoot. of our language coming up. 
I also found it interesting that there's no voicing contrast in the plosives, but it does have the aspirated, unaspirated, and adjectives. That I was like, oh, this is good. Okay, right. so the only tone language I know for sure, I'm pretty sure, is not it because it has for open syllables. Um, I didn't think there were any tone languages in the Pacific Northwest, but I would be, I would be surprised. Uh, I know I wouldn't be surprised. Um, ah, shoot, can you give me something else? Oh, I've got that was just the sound facts. Okay, okay. I'm ready for the morphosyntactic facts. Got it. This language has SOV word order with postpositions. And while its adjectives appear after nouns, its demonstratives appear before nouns. That's nice it, to know. That, it that's, it's it. nice to know that happens. Sorry, go ahead. Exactly, yeah. right? Like I thought that was mm -hmm. cool. Um, it has a very large system for contrast in its demonstrative system, so much so that I have a whole article pulled up about it because this is something we're going to have to talk about. Um, wow. So it's at, at least, based on what I can understand, it ranked on walls in the five or more way contrast system. Um, based on what I can find, there are at least six ways that it splits for its demonstratives. And then like the different kinds of inflections that go on it make it look like there's like 20 different ways. Anyway, so this is something we're going to talk more about. Although the language is a strong prefixing language, it has plural suffixes for its nouns. On its verbs, you mark both the A and P arguments with the P argument being marked before the A argument. So looking at that sort of agent patient terminology there. And verbs can inflect for situational and epistemic possibility, and its nouns do not have any case marking. This language differentiates the uh, committative from the instrumental, and in oh. noun phrase coordination, its word for and is identical to that committative with. Which oh, that's nice. nice. So isn't that something that we did? Yes, it is. And so I was very excited. I was like, yay. That's cool. <laughs> that, that is nice to have. In terms of semantics, the word for finger and hand are the same, but the word for hand and arm are different. And this language has oh. a decimal numeral based system. So nothing like, you know, in yeah. GABA. <laughs> All right, so those are my facts. And then I'm gonna tell you the family. Okay. And then I can give you the genus as well within the family. The larger family though, and I'm hoping I'm saying this right, is Nadene. N-A oh. hyphen D-E-N-E. -E. I certainly know that family, keep going. Its genus is Athapaskin. Within that family. All right. I'm unwilling to commit. Give it to me. What is it? Navajo. Navajo. Okay. Navajo is tonal? It has simple tones. That's what it says in walls. That's how it's categorized. How on earth? So here's one thing. Before we talk about its demonstratives, this is a paragraph I found from from its Wikipedia page. Um, everything I just read, by the way, was from Walls. And so, you know, I verified things. But this paragraph I found really interesting. It says, in terms of basic word order, Navajo has been classified as subject-object verb, right? 
Mm. However, some speakers order the subject and object based on noun ranking. And in this mm. system, nouns are ranked into three categories, humans, animals, inanimate objects. And within those categories, nouns are ranked by strength, size, and intelligence. Whichever of the subject or object has a higher rank appears first in the sentence structure. As a result, the agent of an action may be syntactically ambiguous because it may be the object, but show up first in the sentence structure. Um, and so linguists, including Eloise Jelinek, consider Navajo to be a discourse configurational language in which the word order is not fixed by syntactic rules, but determined by pragmatic factors in the communicative context. And it's not an inverse system, yeah? So like, not I guess, I wow. That's really, so the inverse system for, for those listening is, uh, is one where uh, the arguments are always ranked by animacy. Mm -hmm. And um, it is always assumed that the more highly animate argument is the agent. And when it is not, there is some sort of either a verb modification or a particle that tells you that the opposite thing is true. In this case, it sounds like there is this kind of animacy system that is optional uh, mm -hmm. that, that speakers will use, but there's no inverse marker to help you out. It, remind, right. it, it kind of reminds me of Japanese where it's like, oh yeah, Japanese is super pro drop, but there's no marking right. on the verb whatsoever. It's right. Like, you do it. You just know. You figure it out. <laughs> well, in that too, because, which is why I think, I don't think there's any sort of strategy for the inverse marking because it does say it would be syntactically ambiguous at that point. Yeah, yeah. And as a reminder, back to the facts I read, there's no case marking. So it's not like there's even case mm -hmm. marking on, on the subject or object to really help you out. You could, it would disambiguate though, if, um, because it does mark for both uh, subject and object on the verb, it does have that bipersonal marking. And so mm -hmm. like, I would imagine that that would help out in some cases, but it's not always because, I mean, some of them are going to carry similar, you know, it's going to be third person singular for both of them and you still have to figure out which one's subject or object. So um, yeah. that, I just, I just found that really interesting. I didn't know that about Navajo. I wonder, Mama, you have to do some sort of a prosodic study of it. If there was some sort of prosodic weight given to it if the if there was a mismatch that would be interesting to look at but that's really right cool. right yeah and i also and so i'm going to share a screen right now with david we're recording this through zoom and so um for for eventually when videos are released other people will see this but this is actually um, the spatial terms that I was talking about with those demonstratives because I was looking it up to find more information about it because I was just really interested in such a large, <laughs> to have so many, so many different distinctions that could be made. Um, and so here's what I mean when, like I say, there are technically six ways, but it's also um, each spatial term ends up getting split up into whether it's here, there, nearby, or there. So for instance, um, since you're not seeing the screen in the podcast right now, we're looking at six different words for here. And so one means here at this location or point in time. One means here, this way, around here, or hereabout. Um, but there's another one that also means here, hereabout, or around here, and they give 
this whole paper is just about trying to figure out when to use one versus another. Um, there's a fourth term that means right here or at this place close at hand. Another one that means here at this place. And then yet another that says here at this place or point in time, which very much overlaps with the first one I read. <laughs> so there's six different words. Um, and yeah, it's very intense. And so this entire, really this entire article, and I can link to it um, when I actually post this in Patreon, I'll link to this article. Um, because they argue that really it's like if you look at the number mm. of terms for these demonstratives, it's incredibly overwhelming. Um, but they show that there's a sort of typology and a sense to it. And like they even give you like these tables to do yeah. like, you know, you have this particular prefix means this particular thing. Um, and it has this, you know, proximate or distal kind of feature. So anyway, it's like it's sort of a mix and match bag, if you will, of like six or seven different features being coded and you put the features together to get the meaning that it creates. But I'm just, I was blown away because like when I think of demonstratives, I think of two-way, three-way distinction, maybe four-way, but like I don't, I've never actually created a conlang with more than a three-way distinction. Um, I mean, this is this is a three-way distinction, right? It's just a three uh, a three-way distinction on top, right? That has more distinctions as you get further down within it, which I found interesting because Walls specifically codes it as a five or more-way distinction. So I don't know within Walls because, unfortunately, with the information on Walls, you can tell like mm -hmm. how it's coded, but you don't know the specifics about it. They just tell you like it fits in this feature. Um, and so I wanted to, like, I didn't have enough time to really read through this full article, but I wanted to see, because down below it, in the conclusion, they specifically say it is a six-way distinction, but I can't figure out exactly how um, in, in terms of how they're, they're doing that. So this is just something that I, I need to read more about. <laughs> Hmm. I just found it cool. Have you ever made anything with a large distinction in, in conlangs? Uh, I mean, probably. I just don't remember. <laughs> the problem when you make too many conlangs. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's exactly what I've done. I mean, oh, man. Goodness. So yeah, that's, and also one of the reasons that I have long been fascinated by Navajo specifically um, is because I did, we did learn a little bit more about the Navajo people in history, in my history classes, you know, in K through 12 kind of education, um, partially because of World War II and the Navajo code, code talkers, the wind talkers. And so like that to me, I found really, really interesting, um, especially given the fact that they like, they had Navajo speakers put these military terms into Navajo. So not only did you have to be able to speak Navajo, which like nobody could break that code in the first place, but then if you actually translated it, it was things like um, the word for like a certain kind of armored vehicle was actually, they called it a turtle because it had like a shell on it. And so like they use Navajo words that even if you knew what they were saying, you still had to match them to what they actually meant in the sort of army lingo. Um, and so anyway, like 
if you don't know anything about the Navajo Code Talkers, I highly suggest looking it up because I found that really, really interesting. And it made me more interested in knowing about the language, even as a, as a young scholar. Um, although I still obviously don't know <laughs> everything about it. <laughs> I think We're still Duolingo. <laughs> oh, thank you. Duolingo has a Navajo course, I believe. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. I wonder Speaking how they do of it. the owl on your shirt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but like, I wonder how they do it. Um, I'm gonna have to give that a look because I've always wondered how they do the uh, highly agglutinative ones, at least for the verbs. How would you hmm. teach that? I have to go give That's that a, a good look. question. Yeah. Um, and speaking of a language with interesting verbs, let's go on to language two. All right. All right. So here are the facts about this language. And of course, if you're listening along at home, try to play along and figure out which language I'm talking about. Um, oh, and I will say, I'll give this little hint. I did choose for my three languages, I chose from different geographical regions, just so that way I could kind of spread out across the country. Okay. So this language has an average consonant inventory and an average vowel inventory leaving it with a moderately high consonant to vowel ratio. It has voicing uh, contracts in the fricatives, but does not have any voicing contrast in plosives. And its voiceless stop series also includes aspirated, unaspirated, and ejective stops. So, so far those features are in line with Navajo. It contrasts though, oral and nasal vowel qualities. Its syllable structure is complex and it does not have any tone. This language is also SOV word order with postpositions. Its adjectives appear after nouns as well, but its demonstratives can actually appear before or after nouns. So there are some sort of um, grammatical considerations cool. that have to be made, which I'd have to look into more to understand what they are. Its numbers appear after nouns. So if you're counting nouns, it would be dogs three, just like dogs beautiful. Um, and it has a three-way distinction in its demonstrative system. Its pronouns do not carry any gender distinctions. And its nouns have very few inflections. So for instance, it does not mark for case. And even plurality is indicated on its own word rather than as any sort of affix or other marking on the noun itself. On the other hand, its verbs can be marked for upwards of 10 to 11 inflections. And yet it has no past tense or future tense for its verb marking, and it has no grammatical marking for perfective or imperfective aspects. So all those inflections, wow. other things. And this That's language cool. uses productive full and partial reduplication and differentiates uh, committative from instrumental. Its family is Suin and its genus is Corsuin. Uh, Lakota? Yeah. Indeed. See, I didn't want to give family away first because it's like sure. Suin languages. <laughs> Would you have guessed? Well, speaking of a language I thought I knew a little bit about, geez. Isn't that, okay, and so here I've got a couple of things that I actually copied, again, from the Wikipedia article. Sometimes they have really good sources on there. Um, but 
two of the things about the verbs, because verbs in particular, I was like, okay, I need to figure out what all these inflectional possibilities are if it's not doing what I would think of for verb inflections. Um, and so it says that one set of morphemes indicate person and number of the subject of active verbs. And then they have a different set of morphemes that agree with the object of transitive action verbs or the subject of state of verbs. And so that seems to be potentially kind of mm -hmm. tripartite kind of system, um, the way that's broken out. It says that most of those morphemes are prefixes, but plural subjects are marked with a suffix and third person plural objects with an infix. And I was like, what? And they give examples too of these paradigms, but I was like, oh my gosh, I would, it would take me forever to figure out how to say a statement in Lakota. Um, first person arguments may be singular, dual, or plural, um, but second and third person arguments are only either singular or plural. And then there are also a number of enclitic particles that follow the verb which um, many of which actually differ depending on whether the speaker is male or female. And so the enclitics, so rather than an inflection necessarily marked on the verb, the enclitics are what would then um, differentiate certain aspects and moods and things like that. Um, and they also, oh, the interrogative enclitics, they actually show finer distinctions in meaning. And so, they have one that's just a usual question marking enclitic, but then a different one for rhetorical questions and one for yeah. dubitative, like a tag question in English. Dubitative. Where do we get these words in linguistics? <laughs> dubitative, it comes from doubt. Right, but like, why not just call it the doubtful wa instead of dubitative wa? <laughs> the doubtful wa. <laughs> Oh my goodness. <laughs> the, the actual enclitic is wa, so that's where I got that from, but it's just interesting to me how we come up with these. Okay, but anyway, so that... <laughs> that is such a perfect one, too, for marking doubt. Um, so yeah, so that is the information on Lakota. Now, you said you, you thought you knew. Did you study Lakota or...? Uh, not super a lot. Um... But I was familiar with it from, well, of course, but this book has its own kind of uh, controversial history, doesn't it? Uh, Black Elk Speaks. Really, really enjoyed mm -hmm. that book, which features, you know, Lakota in it. But then at the same time, it was supposed to be taking in the story as remembered by, you know, a very old man at that point, Black mm -hmm. Elk, um, taken down by somebody else. And then... It, I, I can't remember exactly what it was, but the sense was that they, both of them understood like kind of what the purpose was. And so it was more like he was recounting his own history, but perhaps kind of like uh, guiding it in a certain way as to like, as to make a point anyway. So it's, it's accuracy is in doubt, but um I mean, before I knew that, I thought it was really amazing. <laughs> I don't know. So I I didn't actually Nate take Sally, this class. Really? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, and I didn't take it um, when I was in Colorado, but one of the scholars on Lakota is David Rude. And he 
was teaching at University of Colorado while I was there. And mm. so when he did field methods, he used a Lakota speaker. And so students were mm. working on Lakota when they did it. Now I took my field methods class and in case any of you are unfamiliar, field methods as a course, what, what it does is um, a speaker will come in and as students, you have to elicit data. And so it's meant to mimic field work, but you know, obviously in a classroom setting where somebody's helping guide you through like, whether these are good questions to be asking or how to form questions. And um, so anyway, when I took it, I actually didn't have it when David taught it. I had it when Zygmunt Freisinger taught it and he brought in um, a speaker of a language called Kafanono, which is um, spoken in parts of Ethiopia. And so, oh, wow. um, which was a fascinating language. So like, I'm totally fine with that. It's just, it, I didn't get the Lakota experience that so many other people who went to CU had because they did take it with David Rude. Should have taken it again. Yeah, but when you're counting hours and trying to get a certain, <laughs> 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 trying to get a certain number of classes taken under certain prefixes and whatnot, you know, sometimes that just doesn't. Yeah. Because yeah, I was great. actually I don't know anything about this other language you you've taken. You've you've been holding out on me again. <laughs> we we apparently have to talk more about my grad school work. Um, yeah, it was a very interesting class. Um, obviously, very challenging if you've never thought about trying to do any sort of field methods or field work. Um, it's it's difficult to try to figure out like what what data to elicit to figure out patterns without making too many big assumptions. Um, because then the next thing you know, you know, <laughs> you think you know uh, what a certain marker is, but then you're totally wrong because you just assumed that it was like how English categorizes things. It's just, you know, it's yeah. just really interesting. Well, I mean, another way to go about it though, is to start with, you know, start with making assumptions, but keeping an open mind, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's almost like, here is my assumption based on everything I've seen. I, I assume this. Let's try to elicit some data that would show that that's false. Right. Um, you know, uh, and then, but of course, you know, the more data you can get, the more helpful it is because mm -hmm. uh, uh, figuring out the right questions is sometimes hard. Um, right. Uh, by the way, this, this, this should be, this should be a future episode of this uh, where we we talk about grad school. It, it could be it could be called mistakes we made. <laughs> <laughs> what mistakes did I make? None. I mean, <laughs> by your degree, obviously none. <laughs> but you could humor me. <laughs> yes, yes, could humor. Um. No, I actually, I feel very lucky and this is um, a conversation for another day, but I do feel very lucky because like the exact year that I came in um, and started doing specifically started working on doctoral level classes was like the one year span where they actually offered these more advanced like semantics and syntax courses that normally weren't offered. And so like I got to take these classes that people who had been there for years couldn't take. And I was actually only at the university taking classes for three years. And so I managed to like get all these classes. Other people were like, I've been waiting for years for that to come up. So I was very, very lucky with how just the timing played out. And I'm trying to think, and that is right. I would have only 
three, four, four, five, five, six. And then we would have moved. Did you finish your degree remotely? Yeah, because we moved to Buffalo. Um, so Chris could start his PhD. And so I I was finished. only there for three years too. We were there for the exact same three years. I mean, oh, wow. di different school, of course. <laughs> right? And I'm trying to, for some reason, the math doesn't feel like it's working, but that has to be right. And wow, this is such an uninteresting thing to be doing on a podcast because yeah, like I'm literally just counting on my fingers to figure <laughs> out what years I was there. So I'm sorry. But at the same time, I'm like, wait, three, four, four, five, five, six. I must have been there for six, seven. So for four years mm. um, doing coursework. It's just some of my coursework. I had to do independent studies because I had a child. Uh, <laughs> So I wasn't on campus. So that's why I was thinking that part of the time was was gone there. Okay, that's all neither here nor there. That's another day's discussion. We'll talk grad school <laughs> and just dive in on that another day. We have one more language before right. you teach me some Hawaiian. Okay. Okay, this language flip from the others has a small consonant inventory with an average vowel inventory. So it actually has a low consonant to vowel ratio. It does not have any voicing contrasts in either plosives or fricatives. And it contrasts oral and nasal vowels, but only for two. So it only has two nasal vowels that are phonemic. And interestingly enough, they're at that sort of mid height. So they're the e and o are the two that can be nasal, nothing else. And not the okay, A, so, the E. Yeah, so E versus un, and yeah. O versus on. Exactly. Cool. And Got the it. rest of them are not phonemic. Um, it does not have any tone, and its stress is a weight-sensitive system that is right-oriented, so it appears in one of the last three syllables of the word uh, with or yeah, one of the last three syllables of the word with iambic rhythm. And so it's not always consistent which syllable because it's weight sensitive. Mm -hmm. And this language has no dominant word order, something we're going to talk more about because I actually found this really interesting mm -hmm. um, paragraph about that, and is a nominative accusative language. It does not inflect for past tense, but it does have an inflection for future tense. This language has three genders, and its word for finger and hand are the same, but the word for hand and arm are different. This one I have less information on. Oh, I forgot to tell you the family. Mm. This will help, but there will still be some bigger languages that you could know from within it. The family is Iroquoian, oh. and genus is Northern Iroquoian. And I have a personal connection with this one, too, based on where I've lived. Oh, right. Because this language would have been spoken in areas for one of the places where I lived. Long Beach. <laughs> Wrong side of the country. <laughs> no, so, like, I, I have to say this one has me absolutely buffaloed. Oh, 
but you use the <laughs> verb <laughs> for the place. Um, and there's really no way I can give another clue without just saying yeah, it. Yeah, sure. It is Seneca. Um, and so there are a lot of, in the Buffalo area, like there's um, Seneca Falls and there's a lot of like Seneca yeah. names that pop up. And so um, I had seen the name and what I didn't realize until I had done more research on it was I didn't realize that Seneca was actually one of the languages of the Iroquoian peoples. Um, probably because anytime I ever read about Iroquois or Iroquoian um, people, it's always presented in art history books as like one group, right? Like, so I, I think until I researched more, I thought that Iroquois was just like, there would be one Iroquois language or something like that, right? Like I just thought of them as one group. And actually there are seven pretty, uh, okay, I won't say big, but there are like seven different languages that I had at least heard of <laughs> associated in this Iroquoian family. Um, and so just another way that our history books like totally butcher the way we learn history because it like fails to distinguish the fact that it's not just like one group of people, it's actually multiple, um, multiple groups. And so this one, because it's got that no dominant word order. And so here's something I found out about it because, well, two things really. So I'm going to read you two paragraphs. Okay. And then one I'm going to screen share because I have to show you this beautiful table. Okay, this is okay. Just beautiful. I can't wait. I'm like, I'm can't so wait. excited. Okay, so um, Seneca has no dominant word order. Uh, unfortunately, on the Wikipedia article, they say no free word order, which I can have another discussion on that entirely for why I don't <laughs> like that, you know, the whole free word order thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, Rather, new information appears first in a Seneca sentence. So when a noun is judged by the speaker to be more newsworthy than a verb in the same sentence, it's likely to appear before the verb. Uh, if it doesn't hold that relevance, though, it typically follows the verb. Particles, the only Seneca words that cannot be classified as nouns or verbs, appear to follow the same ordering paradigm. Um, and so I found that interesting in terms of you know the newsworthiness and relevance to the situation but also that that little line right there that particles are the only Seneca words that cannot be classified as nouns or verbs mm -hmm. I find that fascinating and I want to know more about mm -hmm. that and see if it's actually yeah. but this may be this may be why um, they have some amazing derivations and so um, like I'm now inspired and we need to figure out how to get some of these derivations just hooked into the possum language or something. Um, so a noun can be incorporated into a verb base by placing it uh, before the middle voice or reflexive prefix. So there's like all these different ways that you can actually incorporate even nouns into the verbs in Seneca. Um, and then they have derivational suffixes that can be added at the end of a base noun to alter the meaning of the verb that it's incorporated in. And I'm going to share this table. Um, and again, from Wikipedia, therefore, I need to find more information about it because you always got to verify. But they've got just this beautiful set of derivational suffixes. Not all of them. This is just some examples. And of course, they all have wonderful names like ambulative, anditive, <laughs> uh, facilitative, 
facilitative. <laughs> However you say that, but they've got these great names um, and they give, you know, like kind of very specific meanings like the ambulative suffix says that this happens while walking. <laughs> Um, or the antative, it indicates the agent travels to a different location to perform the action. Like, how handy is that? Um, oh, there's even one that indicates the event is imminent. It's going to happen, which they call antative plus purposive. How would you say that? Purposive? Purposive. Yeah, pur no, purposive. It sounds more fun to say purposive, so let's do it. Right. I suppose. Also more fun to say affix, I suppose. You don't you don't like affix. You like affix, don't you? Yeah. Which you would think with my my love for the ash, but for some reason I always say affix and I don't know if it's because of whenever I'm what's that? The band Affix Twin. No. Um, Sorry. but but mm -hmm. I think it's because in class, whenever I'm trying to distinguish for my students um, the larger category, like I really stress the affix because I'm trying to get them to remember how to write it and spell it. I don't know why I don't just say affix. I don't know. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But you, you also, I mean, British at this point. Affix. Affix. But <laughs> I also feel like at this point, people know that I just say words the way I say them. Yeah. And so there you go. <laughs> yeah. So these are, these are verb uh, prefixes, right? So they, according to this, they're added at the end of a base noun, but oh, okay, okay, okay. inside yeah, a sense. verb. Yeah. So that's what these are, but it's just, it's such a beautiful list. There's, there's a reversive you know, kind of like our un in English, benefactive, distributives, uh, just all these wonderful yeah. little derivations. And so this could be why it's claimed that there's only nouns, verbs, and particles, because if you yeah. have these kinds of derivations, which would take over a lot of sort of adverb kind of things, um, like I could see that they would also have a very rich sense of derivations uh to indicate more adjective -y type things yeah there is there is so much in what i'm seeing and everything you've said that are just to me to my mind the hallmarks of misanalysis okay <laughs> okay and it may be um we need because a, obviously we need a, this is we need a grammar in this language this this looks really cool I, you know what, actually, after we're done talking, um, I'm going to see if I can find any freely available PDF kind of grammars that I could put up for these three languages in particular. Like I know Navajo has a lot more oh, information sure. out about it because it yeah. just, there is a lot more information. And like I said, Duolingo, <laughs> you can take yeah. a course there. Um, Lakota, I know has a lot of information, but I don't know how much of it is electronically available. Mm -hmm. um and i don't know much about seneca so like that is yeah definitely... this one i'm gonna spend some time looking at that that's really cool so but even if it's misanalysis wow. even if like there's some great derivations and oh, we no. didn't get around like, in in gala we didn't get around to making too many derivations so like i'm hoping this time we have more time <laughs> to, yeah to get into that
it's kind of a it's kind of a weird thing because it's like that's part of the fun but you know there's so much pressure to fill out the grammar because yeah. people are watching and yapping at you <sighs> yes and it's also difficult because when you are trying to do things like incorporate specific name forms like to get like some of them luckily it, it came through like being able to get like the tensibe where it's like that collective derivation you know like so some of them it was it was more easily done um but sometimes that's also hard when you're trying to get words so you can say sentences not necessarily yeah like what are some nuances that we could build into the derivations and plus you sometimes you just want to spend time with those things and it's hard to do that right. type of a thing but, but um, you don't think people just want to look at us staring at our computer screens i mean i do <laughs> but uh so i i should be clear when i say that uh when i say uh that there are lots of things in there that i think they look misanalyzed first of all i don't know you got to look at it second of all uh what i mean it's never the data that's wrong the data is never wrong right mm -hmm. um it's it's the linguists <laughs> We're we're up to monkey business, like like a he like the darling never wrong, like the darling you know Wikipedia article that states that like English has seven different hortatives, and it's also the yes. only language that so happens to distinguish each of those separate seven different hortatives. It's like I think mm, they took that down though, and I'm actually going to double they check better, that. They better have. That was. Be because I swear we had this conversation before mm. um, when we were talking about the hortative. Yeah. And I was like, I'm pretty sure they have fixed that. Um, it's just like sometimes you see these things in grammars where it says, look, there are seven things that this language distinguishes. And it just so happens that only the language I'm studying distinguishes it. And I get to come up with terms for it. It's like, hmm. hmm. Okay, so it appears um that they still do say that we have quite a few of them but i think it's expressed better um so for oh, instance um they give examples of like let us go versus have got to express obligation but a lot of these are like Eesh. it starts getting into we just got so many paraphrastic constructions in English that it's so hard for me when people want to label it as, you know, this is optative, this is imperative, this is hortative. Um, I don't know. A lot of it's just, well, we use these, but I'm also, I was also yeah. educated at a construction grammar institution. So, you know, well, I think it's... in terms of construction. It'd be kind of like, I mean, it's just the type of bizarre thing where you could say that, you know, English is the only language that has a, a commentative counterfactual, which is, uh, which is a special verb form that is only used by uh, sports commentators when narrating highlights, where it's a special use of the present tense mm -hmm. to indicate a counterfactual. But again, only sports commentators and only when narrating highlights. And it's just like, well, I'm not sure that you've discovered a new grammatical category there. <laughs> it's just, just a way that, you know, that we've agreed to, to mark these. Yeah. So, okay. 
so I did not leave as much time as I thought if we're going for our normal hour range, but like, I would like oh, to know right a little something about Hawaiian. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I, I, I often forget that we're supposed to keep this to a certain time, but then we also have things to do. You know that too. So, you know, <laughs> I keep forgetting. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, do you know most of the, the basic stuff about Hawaiian? So one of the main features that always comes up in my mind when I think of the language is the fact that it has very few consonants and um, it, its vowels can differentiate for length. It's, I believe like there's long and short vowel yeah, yeah. distinctions. Okay. Um, yeah, though you wouldn't know that if you got the first teach yourself book that I got. <laughs> oh no. No. Oh, it was it was a doozy. They just didn't even acknowledge that there were long vowels in Hawaiian because I guess they thought you would just know. You'd yeah. figure it out. It's all right. They also, they also didn't always write the glottal stop, only certain times. Oh, yeah, wow. that's kind even of better. Deal. Yeah, yeah. So Hawaiian uh, exists in this group uh, with Polynesian that's very similar mm -hmm. to. Um, uh, romance in that if you look at the various romance languages it's very clear you're basically looking at the same language with differing mm -hmm. you know grammatical features and then you know different uh, phonological features um, sure. so uh, if you look at Hawaiian and Tongan and Samoan um, mm -hmm. and Maori you'll see basically the same language with 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 uh, with with minor um, grammatical and lexical variations. Um, but, and each of them does have a small consonant inventory. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just a matter of how they do it. Um, yeah. So it's like, if you look at the, the proto-language, or at least the, the proto-form, proto-Polynesian, right? Mm -hmm. the, the, the consonant inventory, it distinguished R and L. It distinguished N and Engma. It distinguished S, F, and H, uh, and then it also had a PT and K and a glottal stop. Okay. Um, and all of the various Polynesian languages have done different things to mm -hmm. those. Uh, so it's like, if you look at Maori, it merged L and R, but it merged it into R. Uh, mm -hmm. Hawaiian uh, had a lot of mergers. So what happened is Hawaiian merged R and L into L. Mm -hmm. um, Hawaiian uh, deleted it's uh, glottals completely, which okay. was one of the huge things uh, for Hawaiian. So it deleted its glottal stop and it deleted its glottal fricative, just completely gone. And that left a gap and that initiated a pool chain. So what happened was the absence of the glottal stop allowed the K to drift backwards and K drifted backwards to the glottal stop. And gotcha. it allowed T to drift backwards to K leaving mm -hmm. a blank spot at T. There are certain dialects of Hawaiian that still have T uh, as, as an alternate uh, for, for K, uh, but the main one uh, has split it. Uh, and that's where the pull chain stopped. So it didn't pull P back to T or anything like that. Did the same thing happen to happen with the fricatives? Because another thing yes. that I do know about Hawaiian is that Melekelikimaka is literally Merry Christmas but rendered in the sounds that they have available to them in the language. And so like all the S's are gone. And so yeah. that, interesting, okay. It, it, it should have been, I mean, in my period, in my 
Did I just say that? Yeah, That's you did. Okay. That's okay. Since we heavily edit this podcast, you'll edit that. <laughs> um, I I would have done it as Mele Akalihi Maha. Okay. But I I don't know. I guess uh, the I guess the well, it was an old sound change, and so really what they're trying to get is the coronality of the S. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the and the best you can do with that. Uh, well, preserving the voicelessness is K. It's a little bit further forward than H. But um, S and F in Hawaiian merged into H after H was deleted. Okay. Uh, and so that's what left it so sparse. Um, and so like you get something like in uh, Samoan is aloha uh, for okay. love or hello and so on, which becomes mm -hmm. aloha in, Ho in Hawaiian. Sure. Um, by the way, with that proto sound in there, isn't it kind of close to love? Aloha. I think so. I think so. <laughs> and in fact, I'm pretty sure that that means that it was English at some point. <laughs> I always love it when people like try to make, yeah. these, um, like there was one argument that Basque was related to, I think it was like Bantu languages because the word for water was similar. And, yeah. you know, like as linguists, we're all just like shaking our heads like what, why, what and that would be yeah. similar where it's like oh alofa oh it must have been related to you know all these english words in germanic yeah. a proto a proto form <laughs> proto form for i in uh in hawaiian is mata m-a-t-a mm -hmm. which is uh identical to mata for i in greek and so oh, so it's obviously yes a greek proto language world. as well proto world um, Okay, so does that mean that the word for I in Hawaiian is maka? Yes. Okay. There you go. I'm um, learning. Yeah. And so Hawaiian, of course, did uh, does have the long and short vowel distinction. Um, it got more long vowels, though, after the, um, after the glottal deletion. Okay. Uh, also a lot uh, also a lot more vv sequences but mm -hmm. uh, where they were identical it resulted in long vowels um, okay yeah but then in terms of uh, grammaticality uh, hawaiian is wonderful in that it's uh, so it's a verb initial language it's vso uh, and the only time you see a uh, mix up with that are in two scenarios one where there's negation uh, where the negator is pulled out in front and is very similar to what we did in Ingala. Um, so it's like okay. negator, noun, verb, noun. Gotcha. Um, and then a class of verbs called loa verbs, which are verb, which are essentially ergative. It's a very okay. small class of, of verbs, but it's like ordinarily what you have with a transitive verb in Hawaiian is a verb, noun, e, noun. Um, oh. And just the, the sound e. And mm -hmm. it's just a little particle and it's just, it's a, preposition that comes before uh, objects, but also indirect objects. Mm -hmm. um, with uh, these loa'a verbs, you get a verb like loa'a, and it's that verb, noun, e, noun, and then the e noun is the agent, whereas the first noun oh. is the patient. Um, okay. Yeah, so it's pretty cool, but it's, it's really, it really is just a small class of verbs that you just have to memorize. Um, Do any of them have any semantic kind of distinctions or is it yes. literally just random? No, you can, you could tell, like, if you look at the okay. most of the verbs, it's like, oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense. These form kind of a natural class, except for the verb 
loa, which means like to steal or to take or something. It's seems That's... very it seems very odd for that one. Amazing. Okay. But, so um uh, Hawaiian of course makes heavy use of both partial and full reduplication for many different mm -hmm. purposes. Uh to, <laughs> to the uh extent that they don't even list all of them in the dictionary. They just, okay. it, or, or it's just like, or the definition of this one will just be reduplication of this. And you just have to go and figure out how it's, how it means, right. how, how the reduplication affected it, which is kind of annoying. I prefer that they just say it. It's like, especially now in the digital age, we're not hurting for space here. Um, and then two of the more complex things in terms of I'll give you three, three complex things in terms of Hawaiian grammar. Because uh, they have, they distinguish uh, inclusivity for the first person nouns and there's uh, singular and dual and plural. So they're a bunch of pronouns uh, mm -hmm. and that's cool. Uh, and then it has, um, it does have definite articles. Um, so it has a, a singular definite article and then a plural definite article. Okay. Uh, and the plural definite article, I think is used just for all plurals. And then it also has an indefinite article. So that's kind of, very Englishy. It's like it's like yeah, it's familiar. But um, the three diff most difficult things for me are uh, one is um, uh, the verbs are often used in conjunction with a postverbal element, okay. uh, and they are both integrated into the gr larger uh, TMA system. But also sometimes they're much more or derivational where they're or directional and so you have to learn mm -hmm. the directionals and kind of learn how they're used um, and that's a lot of memorization and so that can be difficult uh, mm -hmm. two is the causative uh, prefix which has many different forms it can be ha it's gonna be ha ha ho ho ho, ho and so on um, and so there's a lot of different very similar obviously phonologically okay. dependent alternates that you have to right learn. right um, and the causative prefix is used a ton and it's not always just basically causative so it's the type of thing where you just have to learn it's like with this right. one that's what it means a lot right. of uh, memorization like that kind of similar to russian perfective prefixes um and then there is the passive suffix uh the passive suffix uh attaches directly to an old root and so that means that a consonant that is no longer there will reappear sometime okay so you just have nice. to memorize which it is and then I second feel like can like, we step back from that for yeah. just one second because i feel like you really like that strategy you're, yes. you're claiming it's one of the most difficult things which it is but yeah. like i also feel like that shows up in a lot of your conlings um and so Thank i you. feel like that's something that you majorly appreciate we can move on after that i just wanted to point that out it's it's one of the things that's most beautiful in language. I mean, just the fact that you have these really weird patterns that sometimes you have to memorize and sometimes seem to hint at either deeper structure or a history that you can no longer access. That's mm -hmm. the cool thing. Um, I mean, if it was all just very cookie cutter, then what would be the point? It wouldn't be fun. Um, anyway, but yeah, also the semantics of it sometimes get weird, like, you can add that prefix to the loa adverbs and get mm. a basic transitive verb. <laughs> that, okay, so it sort of, 
Interesting. I, I'm, I was going to try to put a name to it, but I'm not even going to. But you can add this, what you had said was like a passive prefix? Yeah, it's, or was it it's the passive causative? everywhere. No, okay. it's and passive it, everywhere. Yeah. And, and it turns it into a transitive style verb. Okay. Yeah. If I'm, yeah. Yes, it does. Um, and then um, uh, it could also be added to certain intransitive verbs and it does, you know, things. So mm -hmm. it's kind of like, there is it, like in order to really learn the language and to speak it and to use it effectively there is a lot of memorization involved um in terms of how words are used mm -hmm. uh and comparatively speaking not much to learn when it comes to the actual grammatical alternations or things like that okay um it's, it's really a small number of things that are fairly manageable and then after that, it's like, okay, this is exactly how the grammar works. And you say, okay, so then I can say this. No, that's not what it means. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's well formed. Wrong word. But Wrong that's word. not what it means. Yeah. <laughs> that is great. So, um, and that's, I think, one of the funniest parts of, you know, learning a language. You just got to not be afraid, I guess, to, to say really off the wall things because something's going to yeah. come out wrong. Um, and we actually have a friend who is Bulgarian and he's a cellist. And so we had gone to see him perform. And afterwards, I wanted to tell him that it was a beautiful concert. And so, you know, I have Google Translate in my pocket. I can figure this out. <laughs> and so, right. so I went up to him after the concert and I told him what I thought meant beautiful concert in um, Bulgarian and he gave me the weirdest look and it took him a minute because you know he knows English well enough that like he was able to figure out what <laughs> what I meant but the word that I use can only be used to call somebody handsome and so it, like I think at first he was like trying to figure out if I was calling him handsome during the concert <laughs> like what was going on but yeah you apparently weren't supposed to do that so you've totally froze by the way are you back <laughs> oh let let me tell you what i just experienced because it's kind of fun you you said and i of course had google translate and so fuzz 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 robot 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 and then basically the last thing you said where it's like well obviously that was something you weren't supposed to do exactly <laughs> that was that was it <laughs> well i think that the recording <sighs> probably picked up what i was saying so i'll tell you yeah, the story so later just tell me um, later that, that that would be enough i think though this may be an appropriate time to wrap up um yeah. today's podcast since your internet has been it has been i've been watching the bars go yellow and red much more frequently here near the end so it may be signaling yep. that it's ready to give up <laughs> but i'm glad it stuck out this long and that we were able to talk today about some amazing languages that we have here here <laughs> I was like, I feel like I was going to say something else, but I have no idea what. <laughs> so I we stopped. We're all waiting with bated breath. And... <laughs> I'll just repeat my last word until I figure out where I'm going. Thank you for listening along with us today, and we hope you enjoyed and stay grammar. <laughs> <laughs>